Welcome back to another episode of the Nighttime Short Stories Podcast with your host, me, Ash Balls. This is a podcast where every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I read a short story or poetry written by an author from long ago or a modern-day author. The author that is read from here is then showcased for the week on the Facebook page by the same name, so you're going to want to follow it. If you're an author and would like your short stories or poetry showcased on the podcast, as well as Facebook page for the week, you can get a hold of us in the link in the bio. And that's where you can also find the link to the Facebook page as well. But thank you to everyone who listens from iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and anywhere else you might be listening from. I truly do appreciate it. So let's get started, shall we? The author of this week is from long ago and is someone that I think all of us have heard of, but we don't really know a lot about. And her name is Mary Shelley. Obviously, she's well known for the story Frankenstein, which is not what I'm going to be reading tonight because this is for short stories. But... You are going to discover on the Facebook page this week tons of fascinating, really unique, more probably most likely rumors about her throughout her life that have come to pass. And I think you guys are definitely going to kick out of it. So, yeah, this is to Mary Shelley. The Mortal Immortal by Mary Shelley July 16th, 1833 This is a memorable anniversary for me. On it, I complete my 323rd year. The Wandering Jew? Certainly not. More than 18 centuries have passed over his head. In comparison with him, I am very young immortal. And I, then immortal? This is a question which I have asked myself by day and night for now 303 years, and yet cannot answer it. I detected a gray hair amidst my brown locks on this very day that surely signifies decay, yet it may have remained concealed there for 300 years, for some persons have become entirely white-headed before 20 years of age. I will tell my story, and my reader shall judge for me. I will tell my story, and so contrive to pass some few hours of a long eternity, become so wearisome to me. Forever can it be to live forever? I have heard of enchantments in which the victims were plunged into a deep sleep to wake after a hundred years as fresh as ever. I have heard of the seven sleepers, thus to be immortal would not be so bothersome. But, oh, the weight of never-ending time, the tedious passage of still succeeding hours. How happy was the fabled Najared, but to my task. All the world has heard of Cornelius Agrippa. His memory is as immortal as his arts have made me. All the world has also heard of his scholar, who, unawares, raised the foul fiend during his master's absence and was destroyed by him. The report, true or false, of this accident was attended with many inconveniences to the renowned philosopher. All of his scholars at once deserted him and his servants disappeared. He had no one near him to put coals on his ever-burning fires while he slept. 
or to attend to the changeful colors of his medicines while he studied. Experiment after experiment failed because one pair of hands was insufficient to complete them. The dark spirits laughed at him for not being able to retain a single mortal in his service. I was then very young, very poor, and very much in love. I had been for about a year the pupil of Cornelius, though I was absent when his accident took place. On my return, my friends implored me not to return to the alchemist's abode. I trembled as I listened to the dire tale they told. I required no second warning, and when Cornelius came and offered me a purse of gold if I would remain under his roof, I felt as if Satan himself tempted me. My teeth chattered, my hair stood on end. I ran off as fast as my trembling knees would permit. My failing steps were directed whither for two years they had every evening been attracted, a gently bubbling spring of pure living water beside which lingered a dark-haired girl whose beaming eyes were fixed on the path I was accustomed each night to tread. I cannot remember the hour when I did not love Bertha. We had been neighbors and playmates from infancy. Her parents, like mine, were of humble life, yet respectable. Our attachment had been a source of pleasure to them in an evil hour. A malignment fever carried off both her father and mother, and Bertha became an orphan. She would have found a home beneath my paternal roof, but unfortunately the old lady of the near castle, rich, childless, and solitary, declared her intention to adopt her. Henceforth, Bertha was clad in silk, inhabited a marble palace, and was looked on as being highly favored by fortune. But in her new situation among her new associates, Bertha remained true to the friend of her humbler days. She often visited the cottage of my father, and when forbidden to go thither, she would stray towards the neighboring wood and meet me beside its shady fountain. She often declared that she owed no duty to her new protectress, equal in sanctity to that which bound us. Yet still I was too poor to marry, and she knew, as she grew weary of being tormented on my account, she had a haughty but an impatient spirit and grew angry at the obstacles that prevented our union. We met now after an absence, and she had been sorely beset while I was away. She complained bitterly and almost reproached me for being poor. I replied hastily, I am honest. If I am poor, were I not, I might soon become rich. This exclamation produced a thousand questions. I feared to shock her by owning the truth, but she knew it from me, and then casting a look of disdain on me, she said, You pretend to love, and you fear to face the devil for my sake. I protested that I had only dreaded to offend her while she dwelt on the magnitude of that reward that I should receive, thus encouraged, shamed by her, led on by love and hope, laughing at my late fears and quick steps and a light heart. I returned to accept the offers of the alchemist and was instantly installed in my office. A year passed, I became possessed of no insignificant sum of money. Custom had banished my fears. In spite of the most painful vigilance, I had never detected a trace of cloven foot, nor was the studious silence of our abode ever disturbed by demonic howls. I still continued my stolen interviews with Bertha, and hope dawned on me. Hope, but not perfect joy, for Bertha fancied that love and security were enemies, and her pleasure was to divide them in my bosom. Though true of heart, she was somewhat of a coquette manner, 
and I was as jealous as a Turk. She slighted me in a thousand ways, yet would never acknowledge herself to be in the wrong. She would drive me mad with anger and then force me to beg her pardon. Sometimes she fancied that I was not sufficiently submissive, and then she had some story of a rival favored by her protectress. She was surrounded by silk-clad youths, the rich and gay. What chance had the sad, robbed scholar of Cornelius compared with these? On one occasion, the philosopher made such large demands upon my time that I was unable to meet her as I won't. He was engaged in some mighty work, and I was forced to remain day and night, feeding his furnaces and watching his chemical preparations. Bertha waited for me in vain at the, at the fountain. Her haughty spirit fired at the neglect, and when at last I stole it during the few short minutes allotted to me for slumber and hoped to be consoled by her, she received me with disdain, dismissed me in scorn, and vowed that any man should possess her hand rather than he who could not be in two places at once for her sake. She would be revenged, and truly she was. In my dingy retreat, I heard that she had been hunting, attended by Albert Hoffer. Albert Hoffer was favored by her protectress, and the three passed in cavalcade before my smoky window. Methought that they mentioned my name. It was followed by a laugh of derision as her dark eyes glanced contemptuously towards my abode. Jealousy with all its venom and all its misery entered my breast. Now I shed a torrent of tears to think I should never call her mine, and a nun. I appreciated a thousand curses on her inconstancy. Yet still I must stir the fires of the alchemist, still attend to the changes of his unintelligible medicines. Cornelius had watched for three days and nights nor closed his eyes. The progress of his alembics was slower than he had expected. In spite of his anxiety, sleep weighed upon his eyelids. Again and again he threw off drowsiness with more than human energy. Again and again it stole away his senses. He eyed his crucibles wistfully. Not ready yet, he murmured. Will another night pass before the work is accomplished? Winsy, you are vigilant. You are faithful. You have slept. My boy, you slept last night. Look at the glass vessel. The liquid it contains of a soft rose color. The moment it begins to change its hue, awaken me. Till then I may close my eyes. First it will turn white, and then emit golden flashes. But wait not till then. When the rose color fades, rouse me. I scarcely heard the last words muttered as they were in sleep. Even then, he did not quite yield to nature. Winsy, my boy, he said again, do not touch the vessel. Do not put it to your lips. It is a filter, a filter to cure love. You would not cease to love your Bertha. Beware to drink. And he slept. His venerable head sunk to his breast, and I scarce heard his regular breathing. For a few minutes, I watched the vessel, a rosy hue of liquid, remained unchanged then my thoughts wandered and they visited the fountain and dwelt on a thousand charming scenes never to be renewed never serpents and adders were in my heart as the word never half formed itself on my lips false girl false and cruel never more would she smile on me as that evening she smiled on albert worthless detested woman i would not remain unrevenged she would see Albert, Albert expired at her feet. She would die beneath my vengeance. She had smiled in disdain and triumph. She knew my wretchedness and her power. Yet what power had she? The power of exciting my hate, my utter scorn, my ugh, all but indifference. Could I attain that? Could I regard her with the careless eyes, transferring my rejected love to one fair and more true that were indeed a victory? 
A bright flash darted before my eyes. I had forgotten the medicine of the adept. I gazed on it with wonder, flashes of admirable beauty, more bright than those of the diamond emits when the sun's rays are on it, glanced from the surface of the liquid and an odor the most fragrant and grateful stole over my sense. The vessel seemed one globe of living radiance, lovely to the eye and the most inviting to the taste. The first thought instinctively inspired by the grosser sense was, I will, I must drink. I praise the vessel to my lips. It will cure me of love, of torture. Already I quaffed the half of the most delicious liquor had ever tasted on the palate of man when the philosopher stirred. I started, I dropped the glass, the fluid flamed and glanced along the floor. While I felt Cornelius's grip at my throat, he shrieked, Wretch, you have destroyed the labor of my life. The philosopher was totally unaware that I drank any portion of his drug. His idea, and I gave a tactic assent to it, was that as I raised the vessel from curiosity, and it frightened as it, at its brightness, and the flashes of intense light it gave forth, I let it fall. I never undeceived him. The fire of the medicine was quenched, and the fragrance died away. He grew calm, as a philosopher should, under the heaviest trials, and dismissed me to rest. I will not attempt to describe the sleep of glory and bliss which bathed my soul in paradise during the remaining hours of the memorable night. Words should be faint and shallow types of my enjoyment or of the gladness that possessed my bosom as I woke. I trod air. My thoughts were in heaven. Earth appeared heaven. My inheritance upon it was to be one of trance of delight. This is to be cured of love, I thought. I will see Bertha this day, and she will find her lover cold and regardless, too happy to be disdainful, yet how utterly indifferent to her. The hours danced away, and the philosopher, secure that he had once succeeded, and believing that he might again begin to concoct the same medicine once more, he was shut up with his books and drugs while I had a holiday. I dressed myself with care. I looked in an old but polished shield, which served me for a mirror, Methought my good looks had wonderfully improved. I hurried beyond the precincts of the town, joying my soul in the beauty of heaven and earth around me. I turned my steps towards the castle. I could look on its lofty turrets with lightness of heart, for I was cured of love. My Bertha saw me afar off as I came up the avenue. I know not what sudden impulse animated her bosom, but at the sight she sprung with a light fawn-like bound down the marble steps and was hastening towards me. But I had been perceived by another person, the old high-born hag who called herself her protectress and was her tyrant. She had seen me also. She hobbled, panting up the terrace. A page as ugly as myself held her up to her train and fanned her as she hurried along and stopped her fair girl with a, How now, my bold mistress? Whether so fast, back to your cage. Hawks are abroad. Bertha clasped her hands. Her eyes were still bent on my approaching figure. I saw the contest. How I abhorred the old crone who checked the kind impulses of my Bertha softening heart. Hitherto, for her respect for her rank, had caused me to avoid the lady of the castle. Now I disdained much trivial considerations. I was cured of love and lifted above all human fears. I hastened forwards and soon reached the terrace. How lovely Bertha looked, her eyes flashing fire, her seeks and cheeks glowing with impatience and anger. She was a thousand times more graceful and charming than ever, and I no longer loved. Oh no, I adorned, worshipped, idolized her. She had that morning been prosecuted with more vehemence than usual and consent to the immediate marriage with my rival. 
she was reproached with the encouragement that she had shown him. She was threatened with being turned out of doors with disgrace and shame. Her proud spirit rose in arms at the threat, but when she remembered the scorn that she'd heaped upon me, now perhaps she had lost thus the one of whom she now regarded as her only friend, she wept with remorse and rage, and at that moment I appeared. Oh, Winsy, she explained, take me to your mother's cot. Swiftly let me leave the detested luxuries and wretchedness of this noble dwelling. Take me to my poverty and happiness. You are listening to the Nighttime Short Stories podcast, where we read a new short story from long ago to modern day authors every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So be sure to check out the Facebook page under the same name, there's a link in the bio, for daily information, photos, quotes, and interesting facts and bios on authors showcased for the week. If you know of anyone that you think would enjoy the podcast as well, please be sure to share it out. And again, thank you for listening. I clasped her in my arms with transport. The old dame was speechless with fury and broke forth into an invective only when we were far on our road to our natal cottage. My mother received the fair fugitive escaped from a gilt cage to nature and liberty with tenderness and joy. My father, who loved her, welcomed her heartily. It was a day of rejoicing, which did not need the addition of the celestial potion of the alchemist to steep me in delight. Soon after this eventful day, I became the husband of Bertha. I ceased to be the scholar of Cornelius, and I continued his friend. I always felt grateful to him for having unawares procured me that delicious draught of a divine elixir, which instead of curing me of love, sad cure, solitary and joyless remedy for evils which seem blessings to the memory, had inspired me with courage and resolution, thus winning for me the inestimable treasure in my Bertha. I often called to mind that period of trance-like inebriation with wonder. The drink of Cornelius had not fulfilled the task for which he affirmed that it had been prepared, but its effects were more potent and blissful than words can express. They had faded by degrees, yet they lingered long and painted life in hues of splendor. Bertha often wondered at my lightness of heart and unaccustomed gaiety, for before I'd been rather serious or even sad in my disposition. She loved me the better for my cheerful temper, and our days were winged by joy. Five years afterwards, I was suddenly summoned to the bedside of dying Cornelius. He had sent for me in haste, conjuring my instant presence. I found him stretched on his pallet, enfeebled even in death. All of life that yet remained animated his piercing eyes, and they were fixed on a glass vessel of a rose liquid. Behold, he said in a broken and inward voice, the vanity of human wishes. A second time my hopes are about to be crowned. A second time they are destroyed. Look at that liqueur. You remember five years ago I had prepared the same with the same success. Then as now my thirsting lips expected to taste the immortal elixir. You dashed it from me, and at present it is too late. He spoke with difficulty and fell back on his pillow. I could not help saying, How revered master can a cure for love restore you to life? A faint smile gleamed across his face as I listened earnestly to a scarcely intelligible answer. A cure for love and for all things, the elixir of immortality. Ah, if now I might drink, I should live forever. 
As he spoke, a golden flash gleamed from the fluid. A well-remembered fragrance stole over the air. He raised himself, all weak as he was. Strength seemed miraculously to re-enter his frame. He stretched forth his hand. A loud explosion startled me. A ray of fire shot up from the elixir of the glass vessel, which contained it was shivered to atoms. I turned my eyes towards the philosopher. He had fallen back, and his eyes were glassy, his figures rigid. He was dead. But I believed I was to live forever. So I said, the unfortunate alchemist, and for a few days I believed his words. I remembered the glorious intoxication that had followed my stolen draught. I reflected on the change I had felt in my frame, in my soul, the bounding elasticity of the one, the buoyant lightness of the other. I surveyed myself in a mirror and could perceive no change in my features during the pit space of the five years which had elapsed. I remembered the radiant hues and grateful scent of that delicious beverage, worthy the gift it was capable of bestowing. I was then immortal. A few days after I laughed at my certainty, the old proverb that a prophet is least regarded in his own country was true with respect to me and my defunct master. I loved him as a man. I respected him as a sage, but I derided the notion that he could command the powers of darkness and laughed at the superstitious fear with which he was regarded by the vulgar. He was a wise philosopher, but had no acquaintance with any spirits but those clad in flesh and blood. His science was simply human and human science, I soon persuaded myself, could never conquer nature's law so far as to imprison the soul forever within its carnal habitation. Cornelius had brewed a soul-refreshing drink, more inebriating than wine, sweeter than more fragrant than any fruit. It possessed probably strong medicinal powers, where already were they diminished in my frame. I was a lucky fellow to have quaffed the health and joyous spirits, and perhaps long life at my master's hand, but my good fortune ended there. Longevity was far from different from immortality. I continued to entertain this belief for many years. Sometimes a thought stole across me. Was the alchemist indeed deceived? But my habitual credence was that I should meet the fate of all young children of Adam at my appointed time, a little late, but still at a natural age. Yet it was certain that I retained wonderfully youthful look. I was laughed at for my vanity in consulting the mirror so often, but I consulted it in vain. My brow was untrenched, my cheeks, my eyes, my whole person continued as untarnished as in my 20th year. I was troubled. I looked at the faded beauty of Bertha. I seemed more like her son. By degrees, our neighbors began to make similar observations, and I found at last that I went by the name of the scholar bewitched. Bertha herself grew uneasy. She became jealous and peevish, and at length she began to question me. We had no children. We were all in all to each other, and though as she grew older, the vivacious spirit became a little allied to ill temper, and her beauty sadly diminished. I cherished her in my heart as the mistress I had idolized, the wife I had sought and won with such perfect love. At last, our situation became intolerable. Bertha was fifty. I, 20 years of age, I had in very shame in some measure adopted the habits of a more advanced age. I no longer mingled in the dance among the young and the gay, but my heart bound along with them while I restrained my feet and a sorry figure I cut among the nesters of our village. But before the time I mentioned, things were altered. We were universally shunned. We were, at least I was reported to have kept up iniquitous acquaintance with some of my former master's supposed friends. Poor Bertha was pitied but deserted. 
I was regarded with horror and detestation. What was to be done? We sat by our winter fire. Poverty had made its felt, for none would buy the produce of my farm. And often I had forced a journey 20 miles to some place where I was not known to propose and dispose of our property. It is true, we had saved something for an evil day that was to come. We sat by a lone fireside, the old-hearted youth and his antiquated wife. Again, Bertha insisted on knowing the truth. She recapitulated all that she had ever heard me say and added her own observations. She conjured me to cast off the spell. She described how much more comely gray hairs were than my chestnut locks. She decanted in the reverence and respect due to age, how preferable to the sight regarded pity and paid to mere children. Could I imagine that the despicable gifts of the youth and good looks outweigh disgrace, hatred, and scorn? Nay, in the end, I should be burnt as a dealer in the black art. Well, she, to whom I had not designed to communicate any portion of my good fortune, might be stoned as my accomplice. At length, she insinuated that I must share with her my secret and bestow on her the likes to those I myself enjoyed, or she would denounce me, and then she burst into tears. Thus beset, methought, it was the best way to tell the truth. I revealed it as tenderly as I could and spoke only of a very long life, not of immortality, which representation indeed coincided best with my own ideas. When I ended, I rose and said, Now, my Bertha, will you denounce the lever of your youth? Will you not, I know? But it is not too hard, my wife, that you should suffer from ill luck and the accursed arts of Cornelius. I will leave you. You have wealth enough and friends with will return in my absence. I will go. Young as I seem and strong as I am, I can work and gain my bread among strangers, unsuspected and unknown. I love you in youth. God is my witness that I would not desert you in age, but that your safety and happiness require it. I took my cap and moved towards the door. In a moment, Bertha's arms were around my neck and her lips were pressed to mine. No, my husband, my Winsy, she said, you shall not go alone. Take me with you. We will remove from this place, and as you say, among strangers, we shall be unsuspected and safe. I am not so very old as quite to shame you, my Wednesday, and I dare say the charm will soon wear off, and the blessing of God, you will become more elderly, looking as is fitting. You shall not leave me. I return the good soul's embrace heartily. I will not, my Bertha, but for your sake, I had not the thought of such a thing. I will be your true faithful husband, will you are spared to me in my duty by you to the last. The next day, we prepared as secretly for our immigration. We were obliged to make great pecuniary sacrifices. It could not be helped. We realized the sum ado to anyone acquitted our native country to take refuge in a remote part of western France. It was a cruel thing to transport poor Bertha from her native village and the friends of her youth to her new country. New language, new customs. The strange secret of my destiny rendered this removal immaterial to me, but I compassioned her deeply and was glad to perceive that she had found compensation for her misfortunes in a variety of little ridiculous circumstances. Away from the all telltale chroniclers, she sought to decrease the apparent disparity of our ages by a thousand feminine arts, rouge, youthful dress, and assumed juvenility of manner. I could not be angry. Did not I myself wear a mask? Why quarrel with hers because it was less successful? I grieved deeply when I remembered that this was my Bertha, whom I had loved so fondly, and one such transfer.
airport. A dark-eyed, dark-haired girl with smiles of enchanting archness and a step like a fawn, this mincing, simpering, jealous old woman, I should have revered her gray locks and withered cheeks, but thus it was my work I knew, but I did not the less deplore this type of human weakness. Her jealousy never slept. Her chief occupation was to discover that in spite of outward appearances, I myself growing old, I verily believe that she, the poor soul, loved me truly in her heart, but never had woman so tormenting a mode of display fondness. She would discern wrinkles in my face and discrepitude in my walk, while I bound along in youthful vigor, the youngest looking of twenty youths, I never dared address another woman. On one occasion, fancying that the belle of the village regarded me with favoring eyes, she brought me a gray wig. Her constant discourse among my acquaintances was that they looked and I looked so young and that there was ruin at my work with my frame and that she affirmed that the worst symptom about me was my apparent health. My youth was a disease, she said, and I ought to all times to prepare, if not for a sudden and awful death, at least to awaken some morning white-headed and bowed down with all the marks of advanced years. I let her talk. I often joined in on her conjectures. Her warnings chimed in with my never-ceasing speculations concerning my state, and I took an earnest, though painful, interest in listening to all that her wit and excited imagination could say on the subject. Why dwell on this minute circumstance? We lived on for many long years, and Bertha became bedrid and paralytic. I nursed her as a mother might a child. She grew peevish and still harped upon one string of how long I should survive her. It has never, ever been a source of consolation to me that I performed my duty scrupulously towards her. She had been mine in youth and she was mine in age. And at last, when I heaped the sod over her corpse, I wept to feel that I had lost all that really bound me to humanity. Since then, how many have been my cares and woes? How few and empty my enjoyments? I paused here in my history. I will pursue it no farther. A sailor without rudder or compass, tossed on a stormy sea. A traveler lost on a widespread heath, without landmark or stone to guide him. Such have I been, more lost, more hopeless than either. A nearing ship, a gleam from some far cot, may save them, but I have no beacon except the hope of death. Death mysterious, ill-visaged, friend of weak humanity. Why alone of all immortals have you cast me from your sheltering fold? Oh, for the peace of the grave, the deep silence of the iron-bound tomb. That thought would cease to work in my brain and my heart beat no more with emotions, varied only by new forms of sadness. Am I immortal? I return to my first question in the first place. Is it not more probable that the beverage of the alchemist was fraught rather than longevity than internal life? Such is my hope. And then be it remembered that I only drank half of the potion prepared by him. Was not the whole necessary to complete the charm? To have drained half the elixir of immortality is but to be half immortal. For my forever is thus truncated and null. But then, who shall number the years of the half of eternity? I often try to imagine by what rule the infinite may have divided. Sometimes I fancy age advancing upon me. One gray hair I have found. Fool, do I lament? Yes, the fear of age and death often creeps coldly into my heart. And the more I live, the more I dread death, even while I abhor life. Such an enigma is man, born to perish when he wars, as I do, against the established laws of his nature. But for this anomaly of feeling surely I might die, the medicine of the alchemist would not be proof against fire, sword, and the strangling waters. 
I've gazed upon the blue depths of many a placid lake and the tumultuous rushing, rushing of many a mighty river, and have said peace inhabits those waters, yet I have turned my steps away to live yet another day. I have asked myself whether suicide would be a crime in one whom thus only portals of the other could word could be opened. I have done all except presenting myself as a soldier or duelist, an object of destruction to my, no, not my fellow mortals, and therefore I have shrunk away. They are not my fellows, the places us wide and the poles asunder. I could not raise a hand against the meanest or the most powerful among them. Thus I have lived on for many a year alone, and weary of myself, desirous of death, yet never dying, immortal, immortal. Neither ambition nor avarice can enter my mind, and the ardent love that gnaws at my heart, never to be returned, never to find an equal on which to expend itself, lives there only to torment me. This very day I conceived a design by which I may cut all and end all without self-slaughter, without making another man a cane, an expedition which mortal frame can never survive. Even endued in youth and strength and inhabits mine, thus I shall put my immortality to the test and rest forever or return the wonder and benefactor of the human species. Before I go, a miserable vanity has caused me to pen these pages. I would not die and leave no name behind. Three centuries have passed since I quaffed the fatal beverage. Another year shall not lapse before encountering gigantic dangers warring the powers of frost in their home beset by famine toil and tempest i yield this body too tenacious a cage for a soul which thirsts for freedom to the destructive elements of air and water or if i survive my name shall be recorded as one of the most famous among the sons of men and my task achieved i shall adopt more resolute means and by scattering and annihilating the atoms that compose my frame set at liberty the life imprisoned within and so cruelly prevented from soaring from this dim earth to a sphere more congenial to its immortal essence. The end. You have been listening to the Nighttime Short Stories podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and come back every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new author of the week. Thank you for listening. Until next time.